This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read more books like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through the Google form included in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you are interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access digital early reads and pre-pub author chats as well as my new Traveling Galley program. For May, my early read selection is Banyan Moon by Tao Tai. For June, The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman. And for July, The Book of Silver Linings by Nan Fisher. The link to join is in my show notes. Today, in this behind-the-scenes episode, I am chatting with Carolyn Blakey about her role as an executive editor at Flatiron Books. Carolyn publishes literary and upmarket fiction and select nonfiction at Flatiron, with an emphasis on underrepresented voices, historical fiction, clever retellings, family sagas, coming-of-age stories, innovative structure and style, writing with a strong sense of place, and lots of heart. Originally from St. Louis, she began her career at Knopf and holds a master's degree in 18th century and romantic literature. I hope you enjoy our conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Carolyn. How are you today? I'm doing well, Cindy. How about you? I'm doing well, and I'm super excited to speak with you because one of the things I'm always so curious about is your job. You are an executive editor at Flatiron, which is one of my favorite imprints, and I'm always so curious exactly what an editor does. I know some of it, but I can't wait to chat with you more to learn more in depth about what your days look like. So how did you get started as a book editor? So I was an English major in college, um, and after college, ended up doing a one-year master's program in 18th century and romantic literature, which was very fun and was also a very good test case to teach me that I did not want to be an academic. But I had always sort of had in my head that I would, you know, I would love to do something in books, be that on the academic track or on the publishing track. And I'd done a, a publishing internship during college, so I'd learned a little bit of, about the industry that way. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, so 
didn't really have any sense of what an editor was, what an agent was, what what publishing looked like, but I loved loved to read and and so the thought of working with books every day was was just a dream for me. So I moved to New York and my first job in publishing was as an editorial assistant at Knopf, which is a imprint at Random House. And it was wonderful. I was working for two editors, one who mostly did fiction and one who mostly did nonfiction. And they were both really generous and, you know, allowed me to feel a sense of ownership over their list and have relationships with their authors. And, you know, as I gained experience, I got to do some editing behind them. And it just really instilled a love for for the job in me. And I was there for three years before coming over to Flatiron. And I've been here now for about eight and a half years. And did you start at Flatiron when they were getting started? I did. Yeah. So it was originally a nonfiction imprint for about the first year, year and a half of its life. And I joined right when Amy Einhorn came over to begin the fiction half of the program. So for the first month, it was just the two of us. I was her associate editor. So I was brought on to acquire books on the more literary end of the list and also work very closely with her on her books. And then she hired two other editors, both of whom are still at Flatiron as well. Sarah Barley, who runs our young adult imprint, and Christine Koprash, who does a lot of our mystery thriller suspense titles. And yeah, we've all the three of us have have continued to be here, you know, working on our lists for the past eight and a half years. So we, you know, we really got to sort of help build the list from the ground up, which was incredibly exciting. And it's a really rare experience to have that. I mean, Knopf was 100 years old when I was there. So it was amazing to see that longevity and that history and tradition. But it was also exciting, especially as a younger editor who still was unproven in many ways to have a chance to come and and build something. Absolutely. Two really cool parts of that, being able to get in on the front end when there is something like that, and then feeling like you're going to leave your imprint. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the fact that all three of you all are still there. I know it's wonderful. It's like I feel so I feel so fortunate that that's that that's the case. I love the rest of the team and it's been amazing to see to get to work with many people over the time that I've been here, but it's also nice to kind of have my my rocks and you know we we know each other's taste really well and work closely together. I've I've worked with both of them on on titles where we, you know, co-acquired or kind of advised one another on publishing questions or edits. And it's just, it's really special to have, to have colleagues like that. Absolutely. And it seems like in the publishing industry, there's a lot of moving around just for experience and learning different things. So that longevity is pretty amazing. It really is. I know. And I think part of that was, you know, coming to a new imprint where we were, you know, we were the only employees on the fiction side. So often, a lot of my my contemporaries and peers in in publishing did have to move around to find those opportunities for promotion and advancement and I was I was fortunate in that you know there was a path forward for me at Flatiron because there wasn't really anybody else ahead exactly well if somebody asks you what do you do as a book editor what do you tell them yeah so i usually talk about the job i, I think you can sort of think about it in two halves one half is the half that i think is very, um, very visible. And it's what you sort of think of when you think of an editor, which is, 
reading submissions, you know, falling in love with with the books that I want to acquire, and then editing those books. You know, that's kind of the the dreamy picture that I had in my head when I was when I was thinking of becoming an editor. But that's really only a, a very small part of the job because, you know, then we publish the books. So once once I've found the submissions I want to acquire, worked with the author for anywhere from, you know, three months to two years on, on the editorial process, then it goes into production about a year ahead of publication. And at that point, I sort of become a project manager. So that's the other half of the job, I would say. So I'm the author's liaison in the publishing house. And of course, down the line, they'll have personal relationships with many other people that are involved in the promotion and creation of the book. So from their production editor, their copy editor, of course, their publicist and their marketer, you know, the sales team that's going to be selling it. But I'm kind of the the primary point of contact for the author. So I'm still very involved in the whole process beyond just the kind of nuts and bolts of editing and, you know, continue to kind of oversee all of those parts of the publication process and um, and help whenever I can and answer the author's questions whenever I can. And also just, you know, a lot of my job is kind of sharing my enthusiasm for the book and and hoping that others join me in that enthusiastic passion. And so a lot of it is pitching the book, you know, to all these different people that will be working on the book in different ways. So the way that I talk about the book, for instance, to our art director, or the way that I talk about it with the indie sales rep at Macmillan, or, you know, the publicity team that's going to be talking about the book to the news media. So that I think is a part of the job that I didn't really know quite as much about. That tends to be, you know, it's all about communication and relationships and trust. And I love that part of the job, but I do think that it's quite different from the more maybe monastic side of reading and editing, where it's often, it feels like it's just you and the manuscript and you and the author. And it's very similar to the process of, I mean, for authors, you know, their experience of writing the book, which can be very solitary versus promoting and selling the book, which is all about putting it out into the world. And, you know, it becomes the readers at that point. And so I think similarly for an editor, you have you have those two halves and it, it's sort of different parts of your brain that you're using for both. But, you know, I, I love the dynamism of that. I love the creativity and collaboration of it. And part of why I really wanted to come and, and work in the publishing industry as opposed to becoming an English professor, which maybe I would have said I wanted to be when I was 10 years old, um, was because I wanted I wanted a job that would be more dynamic in that way, working with maybe 20 authors at any given time at different stages. And, you know, some of them have their books coming out this year. Some of them have their books coming out next year. Some we haven't scheduled because they're still in that developmental editing stage. And others, you know, I may have published their books years ago, but they're working on their next book or maybe their book gets optioned for television and suddenly it has a second life. So I really love that part of the job. Like every day is different. Every day you're doing something different for each author. And that's so interesting because as you mentioned, a lot of people think of a book editor for the half of your job where you're reading the manuscripts, deciding what to acquire. 
but they don't really know about the other half of it, or at least I didn't until I started doing more of this, and that you're sort of shepherding it through to make sure it gets all the way to publication. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And I think you have to really love that part of the job in order to be an editor. You know, I think it really is so, so important. And, and I think that's, that's something that you can really learn and, and improve on as you're in the industry longer, like some of the, you know, reading and editing, of course, I think that I've, I've gotten to be a better editor over the years as well, but some of that is instinctual. And I think the part where you are a project manager, like that, in that aspect of it, the experience is so important and it's so helpful to, to just have experienced publishing many different books and seeing the different pressure points and issues that come up and solutions that you found over the years. And so I love the, again, just, I feel like I'm constantly learning with every book that I publish. Well, I'm excited to start talking about the acquiring of books. And once we scheduled this interview and I was looking into you more, I realized you were the editor and have acquired three books that I rave about all the time. Angie Cruz's How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, Charlotte McGonaghy's Once There Were Wolves, and Meet Me at the Museum by Ann Youngson. I love all three of those books. And so I just would love to talk more about the acquiring process and what that looks like for you, how many manuscripts you get, how all that happens for you. Absolutely. And I, you know, I adore all of those books and love, love talking about them. So, so the acquisition process, I feel like this is something that's very, it's very opaque for people that aren't in the industry. And I always love talking about it and, you know, trying to shed a little bit more light on it. So basically most of the, I'm, I'm at one of the, what we call the big five publishing companies, Macmillan, and most of the big five have policies where we only accept agented submissions. So an author can't directly reach out to me with a manuscript. They need to be represented by an agent. And in some cases, we'll find a really talented writer, you know, maybe on Twitter or at a writer's conference or through a literary magazine, and they won't have representation yet. Um, and in those cases, sometimes we'll, you know, we'll set them up with an agent directly. But we think it's very important that an author have that representation and that support and you know, that other voice in the room. So another big part of my job is meeting agents and taking them to lunch, taking them to drinks, doing a Zoom call with them, you know, meeting them at a literary event and just getting to know them, not only in terms of the books that they've worked on, but their kind of personal tastes and their personal interests and telling them about the things that I get really excited about when I'm encountering a submission. Because, you know, there are so many agents out there and so many editors and so many choices when they're putting together their submission list. So I want to make sure that the submissions that I'm getting from agents are as kind of targeted to me as possible so that they'll have the best chance of, of being acquired by Flatiron if they're the right fit for us. So that's a big part of the job is making those, like creating that network and that community of agents that that I think will will be able to send me projects that I'll fall in love with and, and want to acquire. But I also love meeting new people and being surprised and it makes me happy when, you know, when somebody reaches out who I who I hadn't met before, I hadn't, you know, is maybe relatively new to the industry or is just somebody that I've never crossed paths with. And we have a chance to, you know, to have a good conversation and, and get to know each other. So then, you know, agents when they're signing up an author, putting together the submission list of editors that they'll send it to. Everybody has a different process. 
So when agents are putting together the list of the editors that they're going to submit to, I'm hoping that I'll be on the list for the books that will be good fits for me. And um, I get them, you know, they land in my email inbox. Often an agent will give me a heads up call to pitch me on the phone or pitch me over email. And I usually get, I get, I get quite a few submissions. So it depends a little bit on, you know, any given week or month, but I would say I usually get around 15 submissions a week. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and because I do almost entirely fiction, I'm not getting proposals. I'm getting full manuscripts. So the whole novel is landing in my inbox. So I need to make, you know, obviously I, I physically can't read every word of every submission that lands in my inbox. So, you know, I'm making decisions based on the first 50 pages that I'm reading or um, what I know about the author and the agent and the pitch and prioritizing things based on how how compelling the pitch is and how compelling those early pages are. And, you know, I try to get back to agents in as timely a manner as possible. And I only publish about eight books a year, you know, give or take a couple, depending on the year. So those are pretty small odds. And I'll often, you know, I'll often reject a book that's really strong, but it's just for whatever reason doesn't feel like the right fit for me or the right fit for Flatiron. And sometimes I'll redirect to one of my colleagues, but, but, you know, I do end up rejecting quite a lot of the submissions that I see, but, you know, one of the very best feelings as an editor is to fall in love with something on submission because you feel like you, you know, you have this secret, like you're one of the first people to read this book and to discover this amazing thing that hopefully like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of readers will will fall in love with down the line. And that's, those are the moments that really keep me going and make me drop everything for a really exciting submission. So, so when that happens, I try to read as fast as I possibly can and then share it with my team. So I work with an assistant editor, so I'll often send it to her. I'll send it to our publisher as soon as I think there's something there. She's also a really fast reader, so she's amazing, an amazing resource. And you know, we'll we'll read it together, and and then confab about it the next day or whenever we've whenever we've finished. And then you know, if if we agree that it's something that we want to pursue, then we'll put an offer together. So that means running a profit and loss statement based on the numbers that we think the book will sell, and that is based on what are called comp titles in the industry. So those are comparative titles, like books that that feel that have already published, that feel like they're for a similar readership or we have similar sales expectations for this this new book. And you know, you can never be certain, but but we're steeped in in these titles and and you know we know we follow the industry very closely, especially the, you know, the kind of fiction that I publish. I, I know that that market very well. So I'm making my most educated guess. And then, you know, based on that, we put together the advance that we think we want to pay for the book. And then we sort of, you know, you have to kind of see based on the level of interest elsewhere, like maybe it feels like there's a ton of excitement and interest in the industry and you want to snap it up before anybody else does. So that's when you make what's called a preemptive offer. And basically, that's offering an advance before the auction in hopes that you can just kind of seal the deal right away and, 
you know, sometimes if you have a really, I, I should mention also a crucial part of this process is before anything else, I'll have a phone call with the author and make sure that, you know, we have a good connection, that we share the same editorial vision for the book, because the last thing you want is, you know, to work with an author who has a different vision for the book than you do. And that's terrible for the author. It's, it's terrible for the publisher. So that happens, has only happened to me a handful of times. Usually if I'm connecting with something in this really strong way, it's because I, I feel like I really see what the author is doing. And I, I have ideas perhaps for, for how to help them actualize that vision even more and, and fully get to bring the book to, to where they want it to be. You know, but occasionally it becomes clear that our visions are not aligned. And in those cases, it's, it, you know, it's, it's much better for everyone that, that the author go with a different editor and a different, a different publishing vision. But, but assuming that we've had a great call, then, you know, we'll either try to preempt it or we'll wait until the book goes to auction. And there are many different structures of auctions, rules for auctions. It often just depends on, on the demand for the book and, and the agent's preference and the author's preference. And, you know, I've been in auctions where there's been a dozen publishers interested or, you know, two or three, you never really know. Um, but, you know, those are, those are very exciting days and also very stressful days. And, you know, we've all, we've all lost books that we really loved. And, and those are, those are hard, hard to, to let go of, but, but they're, they're made up for by those, amazing moments when you are able to acquire something incredible. So that's interesting. And I know you said it varies the way auctions are done, but the agent will set a date and set up however the auction's going to go. And then are they virtual? Are they online now? Are they in person? It's generally all over email or sometimes it'll be phone calls. Okay. So, um, so sometimes I'll, you know, I'll make the offer over the phone and then follow up with an email, just laying out all the deal points or the agent will decide to run it completely on email. So yeah, unfortunately, I don't know if it, I assume that before, before email was, was so prevalent, it was all on the phone, but I don't know if there were ever auctions that were in person that would, that would be very, very dramatic, but, but yeah, generally speaking, it's, um, it's just me like constantly refreshing my, my email inbox or like clutching my cell phone and jumping every time it rings. So yeah, it's, very, very thrilling days. And it's hard to get anything else done when you're trying to acquire a book. Absolutely. Yes. I was envisioning, you know, they hold the book up and everybody's raising their paddles. And I thought you can't do that all the time for every book. That's all people would be doing. So I was kind of curious. I was like, how does that auction run? And then say you're, you're in the midst of this auction, you've got this book you're dying to buy and it doesn't come to you. How do you learn it doesn't come to you? Or how do you learn it does come to you? Like what's the process like for wrapping up the auction? Yeah. So I would say, you know, there are many different variations on the theme, but the two primary kinds of auctions are what are called round robin auctions and then best bids auctions. So in a round robin auction, usually those are run if there are, you know, a lot of interested parties. Everybody submits their initial bid, and then often the off the agent will call all of the editors and say, This is the high bid from the round. Do you want to match it or go above it? And You'll just keep going around and around and people will gradually drop off. And and then, you know, if the auction is dragging on and on, or maybe there's only two more people, then the, the agent might call best bids where you have one more shot to kind of put your very best offer in. And um, and then, you know, they'll give you a phone call and 
hopefully have good news, but you know, sometimes, sometimes they have to break some hearts, but yeah, it's usually over the phone. And then the other style of auction is just a straight best bid. So basically instead of doing the round robin rounds, initially, you just go straight to the best bid and, you know, so you'll, you'll just put the best offer that you have out there. And sometimes maybe you'll have one chance to improve if the bids are very close together or, or there's some other factor at play where the agent feels you should have a chance to improve. But yeah, so then, you know, in those cases, you find out pretty quickly if, if you've, if you've won or not. And, and sometimes, you know, usually the, the author will decide to go with the, the highest monetary bid, but sometimes there are other factors that will sway them. Like perhaps you have a really interesting bonus structure that you've offered, or they just really loved your vision for the book and you really connected with the author, with the author and they love, you know, what the publishing house has has promised in terms of of the campaign and the support, and so in those cases, you can um, you can win as the underbidder, and those are also very exciting times because it shows that you know you you had maybe a, a creative edge of some sort. I've heard authors talk about that, and I was actually thinking about it while you were explaining the auction and the best bid process that they will talk to different editors and just fall in love with the vision that one editor has. And even if it isn't the best bid, they're like, this is where I feel my home should be for this book. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, in some cases, the bids are so astronomically different that it make, it just wouldn't make sense to leave that amount of money on the table. And if an editor has gotten to that point, they probably also had a good connection with the author and are, are a good home, even if they weren't necessarily like the absolute favorite. So it usually works out, but I have had some instances where and we just weren't, you know, weren't quite at the at the level. But as I always like to say, like publishing publishing lives are very long. And, you know, I've had authors who I've lost auctions for their early books and they've come back around and, and I'm publishing later books of theirs. So you never know. Like I think even if an auction doesn't work out, you never know what what the future might hold in terms of of your relationship with that author. That's very true. What about when you do acquire a book? Have you had it happen where you think, I just know this is going to be a huge hit and then it doesn't land so well? And I'm not asking for specific titles by any means, just generally. Or the flip side of it, like, I really like this book. I think it's going to sell, just say 30,000 copies just for a random number. And then it just sells off the charts. Has either one of those happened to you? Yes. I would say almost every book, there's some kind of surprise. (laughs) Not every book, but it happens a lot. It's very, it's a very, um, it's a very fickle industry and it's very hard to, you know, there's no science to it, especially with fiction, because, you know, with nonfiction, at least an author will often have some sort of platform and you can make assumptions of sales based on those numbers. But for fiction, I would say not every book, but at least a, a handful of books every year that I publish, there's, there's some surprise that comes and maybe it's that you know, we have, I have high expectations for every book I publish. Like I only, I have a very small list and I'm acquiring books that I think have both literary and commercial potential. So books that can win awards and also be bestsellers. So that's kind of, you know, at the best case scenario for most of my books, that's kind of what I'm hoping for. And sometimes I'll, I'll think a book was, you know, was definitely going to get great reviews, but I didn't really know how it was going to sell. And it, it really hits a nerve with readers or in other cases, maybe, you know, I always thought that it could be a, a sleeper hit, but, you know, maybe maybe other people didn't quite share that vision right away, but then it, it kind of snowballs and takes off. And, you know, I think 
you had mentioned Charlotte McConaughey, Once There Were Wolves, and I think she's kind of an incredible example um, because the first book I bought with her uh, was Migrations, which we published the year before Once There Were Wolves, and that ended up being a national bestseller, and it was Amazon's best book of the year. But, you know, I was the only bidder on that book when it was in submission. And and I think, you know, it very quickly in-house kind of snowballed and we uh, sold foreign rights all over the world, which was kind of the first indication that we had something really special. And then the sales team at Macmillan decided to choose it as their their kind of book of the season to really lift up and elevate. And then it was a number one indie next pick, which means that booksellers said that it was, you know, the, the number one book in that month that they were going to be touting. And it ended up surpassing all of our all of our wildest dreams and expectations. And then with Once There Were Wolves, you know, it was an instant New York Times bestseller. And it was also a number one indie next pick. And we were able to just continue building on the success. And I'm editing her newest book right now, actually, the very, the very earliest draft of it. So hopefully that will be available to readers in the next couple of years. But I just, you know, I, I really live for, for moments like that as an editor. I think it's, it's kind of the, the dream scenario when a book that you fall absolutely in love with on submission, just, you know, everybody else figures out that, you know, that it really is that special and they, they share that, that passion. Well, that is the best news on Charlotte McGonaghy's new book, because I haven't read Migrations and I need to. You're the second person to talk about it in two days in interviews. So I need to go back and get it read. But I absolutely loved Once There Were Wolves and I still press it into people's hands all the time. It's just such a beautiful book. And I was lucky enough to get to interview her for the podcast and she was delightful. And it was just so interesting to learn more about the book. Mm -hmm. Yes, agreed. Before we wrap up, what are some books that you recommend? Oh, gosh. Can I recommend books from my own list? Of course. You can recommend whatever you'd like. <laughs> so I love I love every book on my list. And so I would and every book on Flatiron's list. So I would, first of all, urge readers to just, you know, kind of look on our catalog and and, and see what what excites them. But but a few books that I, you know, that I think are, are really special and that I hope more readers fall in love with. One I published at the very end of last year, and it's up for a couple of awards this spring. And it's this really, really gorgeous uh, debut novel called Roses in the Mouth of a Lion by Bushra Raymond. Um, and it's about this Pakistani-American girl who grows is growing up in um, Corona, Queens in the 1980s. And she's kind of discovering her own queerness and falling in love for the first time and trying to square this new awareness of herself as as a, a writer, an artist, a lover with the strictures of her community and her religion and, and the love that she feels for her community. And when I first read it, I immediately thought of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which is one of my absolute favorite books of all time. And it just has that really classic coming of age feel to it. And Boucher is a poet, so it, it has a poet sensibility. It's just really stunning, like kind of similar. You had mentioned Angie Cruz kind of similar to her novel, Dominicana. It's a novel that we published on our adult fiction list, but has so much young adult crossover. And I am so excited for teenage girls, especially to fall in love with this book. And many already have, and I will evangelize this book forever. And I think it's, it's really special. And it's one that I think is going to, you know, going to keep finding readers and hopefully be adopted into, into many course curriculums. It just, it feels like a really important story. 
It sounds beautiful. And I really like the cover on that one. Yeah, it has a gorgeous cover. That's we we learned from the designer. I didn't even think of this when I first looked at it, but it's inspired in part by old New York City subway maps. Oh, really? Okay, I'm going to have to go back and look at it again. Yeah, so that one is really one that I would urge readers to go to. I think it's it's a book that that a lot of a lot of different readers could fall in love with. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I learned so much. I know all my listeners will also be saying the same, and I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for having me, Cindy, and thank you for everything you do to to lift up books and authors and also just to shine a light into the publishing industry because I think it's important that, you know, that there are ways to to lift the curtain and and be more transparent about the work we do. I think that's exactly right. And these episodes seem to really resonate with people because I think they do like learning some of these behind the scenes things that they wouldn't every day be encountering. Yes, agreed. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.